0: I want to let you in on a little secret when i'm not traveling to las vegas or podcasting about las vegas or watching movies about las vegas i like to read about las vegas And over the last several years of doing this podcast, I've been fortunate enough to talk to some very cool authors who've written amazing books about the city, including its people and its history. I thought it might be fun to take a little trip down memory lane and reshare some of those conversations with you. Maybe even give you some ideas for titles to add to your own personal Las Vegas library. My name is Jeff, the host of Jeff Does Vegas, and this is a little something I like to call Vegas Book Club. This time around on Vegas Book Club, we're taking a trip back to episode number 93 of the podcast and my conversation with Matthew O'Brien, the author of the books Beneath the Neon and Dark Days, Bright Nights. Underneath all the glitz and glamour of the Vegas Strip lies a massive network of underground tunnels, which serve the practical purpose of directing flash floodwaters away from the big casinos and resorts. However, those tunnels have also become a living space for hundreds, if not thousands, of homeless people in the city of Las Vegas. Matthew is a writer, editor, and teacher who lived in Las Vegas for close to 20 years. He's considered an authority on homelessness in the Las Vegas tunnels, and he's the founder of Shine a Light, a nonprofit program that helps people living in the tunnels and provides them with resources to get out of the tunnels if they wish to do so matthew and i talked about his initial experiences with the tunnels of las vegas the work that went into writing his books and what inspired him to create shine a light please enjoy my conversation with matthew o'brien
1: i was born in washington dc and um, when my father got a teaching job at georgia tech in atlanta the family moved down there when I was three, around three years old. I grew up in the Atlanta, Georgia area, Decatur, Georgia specifically. Uh, played a lot of basketball when I was when I was young. That was kind of my thing. Um, basketball was really big in Decatur, Georgia in the 1980s when I was growing up, and so um, <clears throat> a, a large part of my youth was misspent on the outdoor you know, asphalt courts of Atlanta, Georgia. And I, I went on to play college basketball at Georgia State University and at the University of West Georgia. When I was at West Georgia, I got a history degree. I thought maybe I would go into coaching basketball and I could teach history at the high school level while coaching. Um, but at the time, I was kind of getting burned out on basketball I had put so much time and effort into it and to me I didn't get back as much as I had put into the sport so it's kind of by my junior senior year of college I was kind of moving away from the idea of coaching basketball and getting this history degree I became really interested in in researching and writing which we had to do a lot of a lot of papers and uh So when I graduated from West Georgia with a history degree, this was like in the mid-90s, I went back to Atlanta and was living like a starving artist um, life there. I had a paper route that I delivered in the afternoons, the Atlanta Journal, and was reading at night the classics that I should have paid more attention to in middle school and in high school and, and early on in college. And in the mornings, I was writing short stories, attempting short novels, getting feedback from my my father, who was an English professor. But I needed a change. Obviously, I was stuck on a paper around in Atlanta. And that that is when I decided, somewhat out of the blue, to move to Las Vegas, Nevada. This was 1997. Vegas was becoming more of the public dialogue it was growing it kind of expanding I think the movie swingers had come out around that time Vegas baby Vegas and I was you know I was doing some sports betting in Atlanta with illegally with a bookie and I had not seen much of the west or southwest growing up in the south and of course as I said I wanted to write so I I kind of blindly moved out to Las Vegas with my roommate. Neither one of us had even been to the city. We didn't know anyone out there. And, you know, we figured we'd give it, I was going to give it six months to a year to see how it went. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of kind of went from there.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the, the tunnels of Las Vegas, as they're often referred to. Um, people maybe have heard urban legends. They've heard stories of these, these tunnels that run under the city of Las Vegas. Um, you yourself have become quite intimately knowledgeable of these tunnels over the last few years. Can you give us a little bit of background about the tunnels under the city of Las Vegas and what got you interested in the tunnels in the first place?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to fill in the gap. I had taken us up to Vegas and and when I moved to Vegas, I I did, you know, start writing quite a bit out there and, and one of the publications I was freelancing for was called Las Vegas City Life, an all weekly paper out there. I freelanced for them. They went on staff around around the year 2000. And when I was managing editor at Las Vegas City Life, when when I heard about a murderer who had evaded the police by using the underground flood channels of Las Vegas. And so that gave me the idea to kind of maybe follow this guy's trail down in these tunnels to see what was down there. And that's when I started kind of reading up on and researching and actually exploring the tunnels. And, And it was kind of around this time and beyond where You know, I reached out to the regional uh, flood control district in Clark County and started learning about how many miles of tunnels there were in the valley and why they were there, what their purpose was. So now I believe you have about 600 miles of flood channels in Las Vegas, uh, almost half of which are underground these are only for when it rains. They don't, they're not used for sewage or for anything else. When it rains, you, we get heavy floods in Las Vegas. And these tunnels here are there basically to protect the casinos and their property and not to interfere with tourism too much, or, or at least that's why they were built initially. But as you probably know, Vegas is a very dry city most of the year. You know, the, these these tunnels are not, are not wet. And so what you have are, are people moving from outside being homeless where it's hot or it's cold or it's windy or you're harassed by the police or business owners to, as I discovered when I started researching this on my own, to, to living down in these underground flood channels permanently.
0: And so then what was your first experience going down into the tunnels then? I mean, it had to have been mildly terrifying and that you don't really a hundred percent know what you're walking into down there.
1: When I was editor of city life and I read about this murderer who would use the underground flood channels, I reached out to a freelancer, a guy named Josh Ellis to see he was kind of a renegade uh, Hunter S Thompson type freelance first person perspective writer to see if he had a any interest in exploring these? And and he did. And I followed up with him a few weeks later, and he told me that he had walked one of these tunnels with a photographer friend, and it was wet, even though it wasn't raining out, and there were crawfish, and he looked up in the manholes, and there were spider webs, and, and some of the manholes had clothing and possessions hanging um down from them and they didn't encounter anyone in this tunnel but it was enough for me to say well when are you going to go into another one and josh didn't have a car at the time so i offered to pick him up that weekend to drive him around to a few tunnels and of course i ended up kind of going in with them and and we started working on the story together at that point but uh i mean it's terrifying especially then we had both seen some pretty crazy stuff above ground in broad daylight in Las Vegas. So we had no idea what might be going on in these dark, discreet tunnels. So we were, um, erring on the side of caution. He, he had a big knife that he was carrying around with him, and he was wearing a trench coat and we both had on, you know, knit caps or hard hats. And I had a golf club that i started using as a walking stick and for self defense, and uh, we, w- we were not expecting to find people down in these tunnels. That was not public knowledge at the time. Uh, a few police officers may have known that. Some people in the homeless population knew people were living down there. But Josh and I were expecting maybe to find some cool graffiti, some weird debris that had washed in there. So when we stumbled upon it, the first homeless camp down there, we were, we were in shock.
0: And I'm sure as shocked as you were to come across a, a homeless encampment in the tunnels, the the people that you encountered there must have been just as surprised as you were and maybe even uh, a, a little bit terrified in that, I mean, all of the sudden, two complete and total strangers have wandered into what is essentially their home.
1: Sadly, City Life newspaper is not around anymore, but the two cover stories that Josh and I co-wrote have been collected in my second book, My Week of the Blue Angel, kind of reworked, expanded, and published in there. So a lot of this information is is in that book there. But we were horrified, and the people who were in and saw us coming in, we're, we're both big guys, Josh and I, and we were armed, as I described, and they're not used to people that they don't know coming down in these tunnels. So... You know, Josh and I were really on edge. They were really on edge. But what we were able to do is just say, "Hey, you know, we're journalists, curious about these tunnels. Can, can we cut through? Do you need anything? You need water? Can we help you?" And kind of engage these people in conversations. For the original articles, we didn't really go in depth with the conversations. It was pretty surface level. But the people were wary, a little apprehensive, and Josh and I were were just. Kind of terrified of the whole situation to be honest yeah
0: i'm assuming it was these initial first trips into the tunnels that led to you putting together your first book um beneath the neon
1: yeah josh and i had talked about taking these two city life stories and maybe turning them in a into a book that we would co-write but at the time he was moving away from las vegas and we agreed that if I got a book deal, I would give him a cut of the advance and I would use the two stories as background information for my own exploration. So Josh and I had visited maybe five or six tunnels and interviewed a few people, but we had seen just enough for me to be convinced that in these hundreds of other miles of tunnels that we we had not explored, that there were probably some really interesting things and people down there. So a few years after our original adventures, I took a summer sabbatical from my job at city life and explored most of these tunnels on my own, just kind of armed with, uh, I didn't want to be as one thing I had learned from the first experiences with Josh is that we had kind of intimidated people You know, so when I went back on my own, it was it was dressed down a little bit more with just kind of a knit cap. And I had a tape recorder on my hip and I did have an expandable baton, but it was in a holster in the small of my back. So it wasn't really visible. And um, I just walked all of these tunnels as as many as I could for this one summer. And and that kind of gave me the foundation for my my first book, Beneath the Neon which is really a first person adventure of me going into these tunnels as, as kind of a newcomer to the tunnel system and not really knowing what is down there. And my adventures, uh, the people I encountered down there long Josh and I had short conversations with them going back on my own. I was able to have these long in depth conversations with the people down there about how they ended up in Vegas, how they ended up homeless, how they discovered these tunnels, what, what their life is like down there. I would ask them questions about current events in the city of Las Vegas. And it was also my observations on Las Vegas from this unique perspective, literally underground there.
0: And the book was quite well received, wasn't it? I mean, it garnered a lot of attention on a, a national basis for the tunnels and the people living in the tunnels.
1: It, it did. It did. The book itself was well received, but I, I think a lot of it was that the general topic people became somehow fascinated with these tunnels under Las Vegas, which I can see why, you know, because Vegas above ground, we, we have this image and perception of it, right? The, the wealthy and the, um, the showgirls and the poker room and the, fan, the people dressed up, the nightclubs. So much color, so much life, so much hope. In some ways, and then right beneath these casinos, in many cases, you have this dark and gray underworld where people are just surviving. They're living off the scraps. They're living off the excess of the city, and you know it. It, it was tough for me to fathom. Kind of okay. I'm right beneath, for instance, Caesar's Palace. I know what's up there, I know what's going on, but down in this tunnel speaking to this Vietnam veteran that's addicted to heroin now, you know, and, and only me and him and no light and no sound, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was tough to kind of comprehend that.
0: Was all the attention that was brought to the tunnels and the people living there uh by by the stories that you were sharing was it good all good attention and i ask this in the way that i mean we all know sometimes these stories can get um blown out of proportion and maybe a little bit sensationalized and then all of a sudden you've got strangers and outsiders who are uh seeing these stories and thinking well if these people can all go down there why can't i go down there it must be fine did you kind of have to be careful about who you were letting into this world Yeah,
1: I mean, when I, even when we wrote the two articles for City Life, and certainly when I'd started researching and writing the book, I, I always my biggest fear was, when the cops hear about this, Metro Vegas cops, that department's notorious for just sweeping the homeless problem on and not addressing it. They've made improvements over the past. 10 15 years but that was my biggest fear metro's going to hear about this and kind of go down and sweep people out of these you know out of their homes essentially my my greatest hope was that the government would hear about it or a local nonprofit and they would maybe you know try to get involved to to help the people down there honestly neither one of those things really happened when the book came out and a lot of the media coverage was nationally and even more so internationally. So it wasn't like locally that, that people were hearing about this on a daily basis. So um, one of the best things to come out of it was that through the book and, and more awareness of the tunnels was that I connected with a local nonprofit called um, Help of Southern Nevada. And I started a foundation called Shine a Light, a community project to kind of help the people down in there. But no, I mean it, it was something that I worried about how it could change the environment. My hope was that more good than bad would come out of me writing about these tunnels and publicizing it. And in my estimation, it it has you know more good than bad has occurred.
0: It's so odd that it would end up being picked up more by national or international media as opposed to the local coverage and actual local assistance it just that seems so bizarre to me
1: it it is interesting and and not just by a narrow margin i mean it was like 10 20 times as much interest internationally as this story as in locally or nationally part of it was maybe my own doing where, you know, after some point, if a local media outlet reached out to me about going down in there, I kind of discouraged it. I didn't want to do it because it could bring heat on the people. And, um, you know, and then, so if if I'm working with a TV crew from Japan and this is only going to show be shown in Japan, it's not really going to have a negative impact necessarily on the people who are down there. So, yeah, you know, the crew from Japan would come in. They would kind of hire me to be a consultant, kind of take them down. I would always make sure that we had stuff for the people and that they knew we were coming. I would either message them on their cell phones. The homeless people down there all have cell phones. Or I would go down in advance, say, coming down with a crew from Japan, they want to ask you guys about how, how life is down here, get a tour of your camp. What can we bring you? You need water, food, McDonald's gift cards. And and so in in my latest book, Dark Days, Bright Nights, I talked to a lot of the people that used to live in the tunnels about the media coverage. And I I was kind of surprised at their reaction to it, saying one of their best experiences living in the tunnels was interacting with media from around the world, making new friends and being asked to share their story having someone who wanted to hear what they had to say and somebody would take care of them with some food or a gift card or a little money afterwards. So it's interesting. And it was kind of a relief to me in some ways to hear that a lot of people who did kind of media um, stuff when they were living down there, it was a really positive experience for them at the time.
0: I want to talk about shine a light because I think that this is just an absolutely amazing charity that you Help to found, um, share with us a little bit, uh, the, the type of work that shine a light is doing, because uh, there's probably, unfortunately, probably a lot of people that aren't very familiar with, with the work that shine a light does.
1: Yeah. So like I said, when I wrote beneath the neon, and it was published. I was really hoping some good would come from that a nonprofit or the government would reach out to me or maybe go down on their own and, and at least offer, you know, Bottled water to the people down there, some food, but nothing like that really happened. So I reached out to Help of Southern Nevada a few years after the book came out. And they were really enthusiastic about us working together. Um, So it started as a collaboration between myself and Help of Southern Nevada. So I would take their social workers down into tunnels and introduce them to the people down there. And they started to befriend them and offer. <clears throat> Not just the water that I would bring down, or snacks, or whatever, but hey, man, you ready? You ready for a change? You ready to get out of this tunnel and get clean and get a job and and be housed? And uh the reception at first was was kind of like the reception Josh and I got at first, a little bit cold, a little bit wary, but. Uh, As they continued, we continued to go down and build that relationship. You started getting more and more people coming out. But Shine a Light grew where another good thing about the media coverage was people in Vegas, in the U.S. and internationally would hear about Shine a Light and what we were doing. And they would donate to us water, clothing, gift cards. And so I kind of became a middleman between anyone who wanted to help the people in the tunnels and the people who were actually down there where they would send me stuff and I would go down, hand it out, give it out, talk to people, befriend them. So it, it kind of was run out of my closet in my home. Me as the point person with anyone else who wanted to get involved, they would, but After 20 years in Vegas, I decided to move to Central America to teach down here. And I wanted to keep Shine a Light going, but it had to be with someone I could trust and feel that they could do a good job with it. And for my book, Dark Days, Bright Nights, that came out about a year ago, I had interviewed a guy named Paul Votrino, who had lived in the tunnels for a few years, got clean and was now working at Freedom House, a nonprofit as a social worker. And Paul and I, you know, we had a good interview for my book and a good conversation. And I, and one day I said, Paul, do you have any interest in taking on this Shine a Light program for me and in running it? And He had never really thought about that. He had lived in the tunnels and was a social worker helping people above ground. But the idea of him going back down in these tunnels, I think, was probably a little bit complicated, a little bit intimidating for him. But he liked the idea. And I started taking Paul down into these tunnels. And he got really comfortable with the idea of being back down there and and giving back to this population he had once been a part of. So... Four years later, after passing off the program to Paul and Freedom House, it is just it just keeps growing and growing because they can offer direct help from themselves. They don't have to collaborate with other people to help the residents of the tunnels. So it's turned into a thing where it's kind of run now by people who used to live in the tunnels and are now clean and doing really well and want to give back to that population.
0: I um, I follow Shine a Light on Facebook, and I have to say it's always kind of heartwarming. Um, usually, either Sunday or Monday, they'll share uh, new photos and new posts from the that weekend of going down into the tunnels and and talking to people and helping people. Whether it's um, handing out food or water or hygiene products or clothing or or whatever it is they're doing, it's always great to see that, and it, it's always amazing to read the stories of people who have made that decision to come up out of the tunnels and, um, start their, their life outside the tunnels again. It it really is. Um, it really is heartwarming and it's, it's amazing to see.
1: Yeah. I think in one of the posts recently, in the past year alone, I think they had housed like 70 or 80 people out of the tunnels, you know, where, when I was doing it on my own and having to collaborate with others, We had some some success housing people, but those kind of numbers were just not realistic at the time. Um, So, yeah, they typically they go down at least once a week on the weekends with with a group. I I like to kind of work on my own or with, you know, maybe a few volunteers. This is interesting. The people who used to live in the tunnels, they like getting the whole community involved and kind of taking them down in there where I was a little bit wary about who, even though I did a lot of media down there, I didn't just, you know, people would email me and you ask me about the tunnels or when to go down. And I would usually say, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's best that, that you don't go down in there, but a light. Now they, they take communities, um, the volunteers and go down there with them. And so it just keeps growing and growing.
0: Let's talk about your your most recent book Dark Days Bright Nights. I've been reading this book for the last little while now and what I've kind of felt in reading it is it's it's almost a it's a hopeful book because you're you're reading the stories of these people uh, that lived in the tunnels and how they got there but it it feels hopeful I guess because you kind of know what the outcome is and that these are folks that have made their way out of the tunnels.
1: I'm glad to hear that cuz one of my fears and I've heard this from from certain readers is that my goal with this book is to give the the real raw unfiltered stories of life in the tunnels of Vegas from people who lived it and who got out through shine a light or help with southern Nevada or US vets or on their own. And the stories are, they're hard to hear some of them, you know, but I, I wanted to not just talk about life in the tunnels, but go all the way back to how do people who are homeless, you know, how did they grow up? What was their family life like? What was their education? Is there something in their youth that led them to ending up on the streets and in the tunnels of Las Vegas? And some of the stories For instance, a woman named Cindy, she shared a story of her young brother who she was babysitting, falling off his bunk bed when he was like two years old, breaking his neck and dying. And this was a traumatic event in her life that she was never able to kind of cope with. And and that was kind of a root cause of her becoming homeless and, and drug addicted at some point. So the I'm glad to hear you say these stories are hopeful because they start out, a lot of them, pretty bleak. But eventually, you know, we do show in the book that people can change. People who are homeless can get out of that situation if they want to and turn around their lives. It's not easy, it's challenging but i wanted that ray of light to to clearly shine through in that in that book along with the real raw stories that are in there
0: i actually really appreciated that you took it back as far as you did in this book in the profiles of the people that you covered and and you actually kind of touch on this in, in the book in that when the media tends to cover the homeless population and if they're interviewing somebody from that population they will ask them how did you end up homeless? And they kind of give it the standard 10-second treatment and then move on. You don't really go deep into their stories. You did that in this book. And and I mean, there's also, I think, a, a preconceived notion maybe about members of the homeless population and, and their levels of intelligence or levels of education. But the people that you profiled in your book— there are some very highly educated people there there are some people who held some very high level high paying positions in in their employment and in their work and so i think it was it, it, the way you presented it and was incredible and i think it's very important that that information was presented here
1: yeah and I I wasn't trying to deliver any message personally any any political message or or advocate for one thing or another I was trying to present these stories in a raw unfiltered way for people to kind of make their own judgments about homelessness and and what are its causes and and what it's like the homeless life and how you can get out of that situation and I just thought the stories that some of these people shared were so incredibly powerful. And, it, and as you're pointing out, it's they're not all from broken families or, or, you know, high school dropouts or what, you know, it's 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 something of a variety, their, their backgrounds.
0: I know in reading the book, it's kind of forced me to sort of take a step back and um, step into my own brain and kind of um, reassess my own notions and opinions about the homeless population. So I would imagine, and that's just from, from reading a book, I would imagine that for yourself, having been involved with this population and being involved in this project for the amount of time that you have, you've probably learned a few things about yourself and, and, and about this whole situation. What would you say is kind of the biggest takeaway for you?
1: Well, as I had said in the book, and you had mentioned earlier, a lot of coverage of homeless is homelessness in the moment, that person as they are homeless, or maybe just as they're getting housed. And I had a lot of curiosity because a lot of my coverage was like that, too. I, I wanted to go back and kind of learn more about this. And of course, I had written about the homeless for many years as a journalist and for my first two books. Um but one thing that stood out to me is trauma. I had mentioned Cindy and her young brother, you know being killed while she while she was babysitting him and her trauma with that and trying to cope with that the rest of her life. And I noticed in this book a lot of people that I interviewed had maybe not a traumatic event quite like that, but some kind of trauma early in their lives childhood trauma whether it's parents getting a a divorce uh a drug addicted parent perhaps a tragic situation like cindy had there um so that led me to do more research on kind of childhood traumas and and their connection to addiction and homelessness which i write about a little bit in the book and which is really clear in the stories that the people tell in in the book but that, that was one of the main takeaways for me.
0: Matthew, if people want to learn more about yourself and the work that you've done and the work that Shine a Light does and uh, pick up copies of the books that you have available, um, how would they go about doing that?
1: A good place to start is my personal website. It's, it's the title of my first book, BeneathTheNeon.com. It has information there on my three books, and um on china light a lot of information on china light and how you can get involved in that project is
0: as well excellent stuff matthew thank you once again for taking time to jump on and chat with me here i really do appreciate it and uh really appreciate the work that you've done and in, in helping out this segment of las vegas's population and some very vulnerable people who really do need the help and and hopefully um Other people will uh, follow your lead and, uh, and jump in and help out as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation.